0: This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, a small conference event for AEC professionals and technology providers to discuss industry trends and ideas together. It's put on by the fine folks at Avail. You can learn more about the upcoming invite-only events during this episode. This episode is sponsored by ArchiT. ArchiT only supports architecture, design, and engineering firms at a price that would pleasantly surprise you. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Molly Claypool. Molly is co-founder and CEO of Automated Architecture, which from here on out will be referred to as AUAR, which is A-U-A-R. An activist entrepreneur at heart, Molly believes in radically changing the way we build so we can change the way we live. Her ethos is that radical change in housing production, using automation, must come from a fundamental rethink of both what and how we build. Molly has initiated projects and led teams of up to 50 people towards cultural and organizational change in the built environment. Her background includes an associate professorship in architecture at the Bartlett School of Architecture, UCL. At the Bartlett, she is co-director of our labs and has been history and theory coordinator in MArch Architectural Design. As managing editor of Prospectives, an open access peer reviewed journal supported by the Bartlett, she has advocated for emerging thinkers and diverse voices in architecture. As an author, she co wrote Robotic Building Architecture in the Age of Automation and authored the Space 10 Report The Digital in Architecture, Then, Now, and in the Future. She's been a visiting professor at the Cluster for Excellence. Integrative Computational Design and Construction for Architecture at the University of Stuttgart and was faculty at the AA School of Architecture. Molly has a passion for politics, allotmenting, which is also known as gardening, I did have to look that word up, and environmental activism. She's a mom of two and lives in Bristol, UK with her partner. In this episode, we discuss how technology could be used to bridge the gap between the way architecture is designed and the way it is built in order to make it more accessible to the 99%. Other topics include robotics and automation and architecture, the disconnect between design and construction, bridging the gap between design and reality, the importance of social values and impact in architecture, the need for hands-on learning and visual thinking and education, and more. So, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Molly Claypool. Molly, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have a conversation. This is becoming a theme. Robotics, I mean, obviously tech and architecture, all that stuff. But I would love it if you could give a Background: How did you get to where you are now? Why do you do what you do? Like, let just paint a picture of what that trajectory has been, looking backward, uh, and, and for the audience.
1: Sure. So I started um, my professional career in two thousand and eight, which was obviously, and um, the moment of the last, well, I'd say second to last, uh, financial crash. Right, and I graduated at a time where there wasn't really any work. You know, everyone was getting fired or made redundant because um, there wasn't any work. And I had just started a master's degree as a as kind of a pre preempting that. And I finished my master's degree it, from the AA school of architecture, which at the time was a very exciting place to be, where the design research lab and others were doing really interesting work at the intersection of design, computation, automation, robotics. But what I felt was missing from the conversations that were happening in the design research lab, and what I felt like was missing in previous generations of quote-unquote digital architects, was a conversation around social values and social impact. Not to say those that earlier generation or that institution wasn't trying to have those conversations, I just felt like it wasn't really embedded into the way that we were using the tools and how those tools were enabling us to think radically differently about how they could change people's lives. So can, an example of that. Pause?
0: Yeah, that's what, I, well, that's what I wanted to get to. I just wanted to pause the the story there and say, what do you mean by that? So yeah, give your example. And because I, when, when you say social impact, I think like citizen architect kind of things. Mm-hmm. But, but you might, so, so anyway, you might th- think something different. So I wanted to, to hear what that meant.
1: Absolutely. So a great example is that the digital architects of the 1990s, t- 2000s were mainly designing large cultural buildings. Mm. So, you know, you have Guggenheim Bilbao, you have Yokohama mm. Terminal, you have really large cultural projects. That are beautiful projects, don't get me wrong, innovative in and of themselves, but don't impact the lives of everyday people to the degree that previous projects in architecture that were really focused on questions of housing and, you know, everyday kind of access to good design were. And I saw that as a disconnect between Uh, Me and other people, there was a lot of us doing this at the time, as a disconnect between the design tools that we're using and the way that the vast majority of buildings and homes get built, Mm -hmm. which is very manual, very labor, cumbersome work. Mm -hmm. So even though we had the capability to design and really interesting new forms of what architecture could be, there was that gap between the way that we design and the way that we build. Um, and I saw that gap as actually really causing why architecture couldn't really reach the 99% um, rather than the 1%, or at least one of the causes. So we started thinking, okay, well, if there is this massive disconnect between the way that we design and the way that we build, you know, shouldn't the fact that technology is becoming more and more accessible make it more and more possible to begin to close that gap? And the way that we began to question that was not through the lens of using new tools just to design new forms and new shapes, but also thinking about what, is the, what are, makes up the, vas- the very basic parts of what architecture is. Because, for example, in construction, you have buildings that are made of thousands of parts. Very difficult to simulate that. Very difficult to simulate the process of putting that together. You know, it takes a lot of, in traditional ways of designing and constructing, it takes a lot (laughs) of manpower to be able to produce the documentation needed. And And we thought, okay, well, there must be a problem in exactly what we're building with, not just how we're building or just how we're designing. And that kind of led us to really designing, you know, an architectural system for building that was truly designed for automation, truly designed for robotics and designed for robotics assembly in particular.
0: Interesting. I I think about the the words that you're using about manual labor and construction and and assemblies of parts and thousands and thousands of parts and this kind of social fabric that exists between the 1% and the 99%, like that missing, that huge missing gap. And it is really interesting, right? To think about how, and you even made the distinction, like designing technology to design I'll just use the word like crazier forms or, you know, more innovative forms. Um, and, and how much time is spent kind of thinking about and modeling all those intricate pieces that ultimately get put in place by hand, right? And there's a, just this giant spectrum in all of that. And the disconnected pieces of that spectrum really don't make it feel like a spectrum at all. Like it's, you've got People sitting at desks, toiling all night long behind computer screens, modeling little tiny pieces that ultimately, like, they really don't know how they go together a lot of the time. And you've got the other end of that spectrum, which is people trying to read that off of a drawing, right, or a shop drawing of how to actually, what what is the design intent here? And then a level of interpretation that's going on there. And all of the stuff in the middle, like, that is a really messy Middle, And I think that's one of the big reasons why technology hasn't saved architecture, right? Like it's, there is this, there is so much in the middle bridging the gap between what is in the mind of the architect, the designer, the design team, all of the consultants, everybody there and the coordination that's happening. And like, that's a soup in itself. And the wisdom of the people who are on the job sites that the years and years and years of doing the things and how disconnected those two camps alone are is incredible. I mean, it's it's kind of no wonder that there's no such thing as capital A architecture for the 99%. Like it's it's so hard and it costs so much money, right, to build the kinds of projects that you spoke about, like Guggenheim, Bilbao and things like that, where it's just like, well yeah, I mean and years and years and years of time. And while the world marches on in a very consumerist mentality of I buy things, I don't buy a process. I don't buy a design process that takes years and years and all of my money. Wow, talk about layers and layers of disconnection there and Absolutely. and and you're thinking about this from a standpoint of like how can we actually begin to bridge that gap because there's there's design capital a architecture design for that 1% and then there's so much left on the table right that c- that could be a much more automated design and assembly fabrication building process to build better for that 99%
1: absolutely there's there's absolutely. a lot of
0: opportunity there
1: and i mean it's the most urgent space that we have actually to deal with because for example we work quite explicitly in the housing sector and housing is such a need that the way that we build is Mm -hmm. never, the way we build now or have built historically is never going to satisfy that need and desire. And housing is unfortunately been so commodified and financialized that the processes by which we build housing that are so incredibly inefficient actually support that commodification and financialization. So we have to actually radically change that entire process to be able to think differently about delivering homes more efficiently and then better. So I really think that that missing middle for us is the place that we like to sit. It's the place that I like to think about Mm -hmm. and the place I like to work in because everyone can identify with it, first of all, whether you're a real estate developer or just, you know, my neighbor down the road. Everyone has a horror story. There's almost no one that exists <laughs> that doesn't have one story at least about uh, something that has been wrong for them in their living environment. Mm-hmm. And if we can enable that kind of identification with that issue to become as accessible as possible to as many people as possible, I think we can do an immense amount of good to the world. And we can help people have the one of the very basic rights secured to them.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: for me, it's about navigating that big, 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 big issue through what is a big, big, big problem and a big, big, big challenge, but through a very precise lens. And the lens is that we are designing really poorly for the technologies that we have available to us right now.
0: And identifying that as a as a the thing that you're going after. So where where has that? led you specifically
1: i met my co-founder in 2011 i think 2010 um in the drl at the architectural association it was my second year teaching and we stayed in conversation after that we were both really young i was 24 um at the time i think maybe 25 and we um were part of a you know a rising generation of people who are thinking about these issues. And I started working, um, I would say, mainly in the theory space in architecture and computational architecture in particular, teaching and writing, publishing. And that gave me a great exposure to a lot of people doing really interesting things in terms of design. But sure. not a lot of people doing very interesting things in terms of proving this at scale
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that became something that I found really problematic that this problem there was great ideas in terms of you know what it was potentially possible, but actually doing it for real yeah. it it ended up amounting to someone building like an installation or a pavilion or a video or something like that and it didn't right. really connect for me um I'm a no. very visual and person i learn very well through using my hands also so if Mm -hmm. i can't touch something and really experience it in the way that it's meant to be experienced i really struggle with um identifying with it and i think that that meant that i was constantly questioning just how innovative this new technique of modeling or Mm -hmm. 3d printing something was because i was like okay well how does this scale like, how does this actually become what you're truly saying it should be? Where does it intersect with the industry that already exists that looks at this and says that this is wild? And like, how do we make that gap and make that leap? So we start, I started a research lab with a few others. In 2017, I shifted from the Architectural Association to the Bartlett School of Architecture, first as the undergraduate program director there, um, and then started this research lab. Now, the I was brought into... Um, the Bartlett specifically because of my background in computational theory and technology and it was going through a shift at the time towards integrating more computational tools into the undergraduate program and I was an outsider and they thought that it was a good idea to bring in someone from the outside who you know was adept at being able to navigate the politics of an institution like that And so I spent a few years really trying to understand, you know, from a practitioner's perspective, which is the main group of people that teach design, right, in a School of Architecture, um, you know, where they really saw these digital tools being useful for their students. And I found, again, that there was a big gap in terms of representation versus realization. So my research lab was um, evolving at the same time, and we launched in 2017, early 2017, and um, I had just had my first kid like a few weeks before. Um, and that really took off um, the year later when we started saying, okay, well, if nobody else is going to really do this kind of project and getting out into industry and the communities that need homes and could benefit from the way that we're developing an approach towards automation, let's just do it ourselves. Like, let's do it for real. So we found we found um, some of our collaborators. I met, I was part of the Southwest Creative Technology Network um, fellowship program out in the southwest of England um, for a year. And I met one of our first collaborators um, out at this um, uh, digital arts and media association called Null West Media Center. The director there, Melissa Mean, and I hit it off. And she does a lot of community-driven work using digital tools and technologies. And we started developing, co co developing work together around how do you enable people, everyday people, to actually begin to connect to robotics, to new software development tools, to the idea of what a platform could be, to um, all the new tools and technologies that they wouldn't have ever been able to get close to, which was a really exciting time because we finally had a group of people that we could work with and we've worked with since. in figuring out what is the best way to demonstrate that these tools could have a life-transforming impact if they were made more accessible.
0: Wow. This episode is brought to you by Avail. Avail is the content management system you deserve. With its beautifully simple interface, Avail makes it easy to manage, organize, find, and use your information. Designed by designers for designers and engineers, the Avail platform takes advantage of visual acuity, allowing for a visual audience to identify what they need in a couple of clicks. Avail is designed to serve any content type from any file location and allow for simple, fast deployment of your content. Plus, thanks to powerful integrations with Revit and other applications, you can seamlessly incorporate Avail into all your workflows. Say goodbye to the headache of locating and managing content and say hello to efficiency. To learn more, visit getavail.com. Avail, the information you need faster. I want to go back to something you said early on in that go right there, which was you learn through working with your hands and you're a very visual learner. Architecture school is obviously kind of all about that, right? Like, at least it it was back in back in the day when we and I'm sure it still is to some extent of building physical models and it's really interesting though, to think about kind of the timeline and how things have shifted so much in the tool set of designers away from the physical and just into the digital space, right, and we talked mm-hmm, earlier about definitely. the kind of disconnection between the design and the reality of of building at scale and it's just Timely. I was just watching a TED talk by Temple Grandin, and she has a a book about visual thinking that's been out for a while, I think. And just talking about the need for um, a lot of brains out there, a lot of people with the kind of brains who who operate like that. I'm definitely one of those people. I'm like a visual object thinker. Um, I can think spatially, and obviously, there's a lot of training that goes into into that. On From from an architectural education perspective, but there's also people who are just wired like that. And I think a lot of people end up in architecture and other similar fields because they think like that. Uh, I had architectural drafting classes, like those don't exist anymore. I know there was a wood shop, there was a metal shop, there was photography studios in high school. A lot of those things don't exist anymore. Not all, they're not all gone and they're not all gone everywhere but they are gone in many, many places. And do you think that that is contributing? I mean, it just seems kind of like a rhetorical question at this point, <laughs> but do you think that that is contributing to this disconnection? I just think about my kids. Like I've got, my oldest is 21. My youngest is 17. And in be- even there, like there's not besides what I have taught them, they haven't had a lot of opportunities to explore making things with their hands and whether they're wired like that or not, like you kind of have to figure out if you're wired like that by actually doing it. Right. Cause there's some kids who are just totally excelling in algebra and Temple Grandin makes this point. Like she should have skipped algebra and went straight to geometry because it's visual, it's shapes. And There's kind of this rigor in education in the curriculum, it's pushing more and more towards STEM, right? But STEM is still very abstract and it's still very, it's not hands on. It is still very, you know, it's a lot of brain work and it's not visual brain work. It's like text based kind of stuff. And so she kind of makes a distinction between text based learners and object based learners. Do you think that that's driving a lot more of this disconnection? Because I see like what the focus is in architecture school to create amazing forms, creating great visual coding, scripting, doing all of these things, and and to create amazing design, but it will never get built, and a lot of times it is not buildable at all. And so I kind of bridge, going back to bridging that gap, you're in academia. How are you guys mm-hmm. addressing that, like bridging that gap there as well? Like, I, I we're leading we're leading somewhere here with this conversation, but <laughs> it just seems like all of these things are kind of swirling around in my brain as you're telling me this, and it, and obviously I'm going off in some tangents here as well, but uh, digressions are encouraged. I think. Um, what what do you think about all that that side of things? When so it comes I think there is.
1: So I think there's a couple of different things I can pick up on. One is that, I mean, architecture, since the beginning of it being called architecture, was disconnected from the practice of building. Mm. Right. So, the, I mean, we already have that Mm-mm. disconnection within our discipline. Now, obviously, there's been many attempts over the years to bring these two sides together. There certain mm-hmm. people who see certain names and that we're familiar with that Jean Prouvé, for example, who tried to bring together design and manufacturing, design to production, and many more since then. But I think at, at it's very basic tenet. This disconnect the architect has from construction is is at the core of it. And then again, you have the whole, um, you know, sociopolitical framework of business in architecture, right? And yeah, liability right. and the legal framework, which also yeah. encourages that. And then on the other side, I think, you know, There's two ways you can look at it. One is that we don't necessarily have role models for bringing together digital tools at scale within academia, because it's very difficult for someone who is a practitioner to also teach if you're doing something at, at that kind of scale that I'm talking about, or is within the private company, is kind of held within a private company and can't necessarily come through. Or, you know, in education, you have an underfunding of arts, music, things which much you would touch and feel, right? Mm. You know, when I went to high school, we had a photography studio, I would develop my own film, I had an insane art room, um, where I would spend most of my breaks just making stuff. You know, that in my kids primary school here, I even see already that that messy space isn't really truly available to him in the way that it was to me,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and I think you know at least in the u k we have a government that has progressively underfunded the arts and humanities that would give you access to that wide variety of different forms of education um over the last fifteen years. so you know we're in a we're in a prime state for that disconnect to be even more right. widened in the younger generations, and I think right. It comes down to us as educators, but also comes down to us as practitioners and trying to change things to try to be the change that we want to see for the younger generation, to serve as role models um, for them as well. So for example, I, I like to spend some of my time mentoring young women who see that either they're going to be, in academia in particular, either going to be pushed into a more administrative role or aren't seen as design tutors for whatever reason mm-hmm. or aren't seen as they aren't seen as kind of as individuals you know having their own project and instead do very much you know as a result either do highly collaborative work or as a result kind of fall into the administrative trap and you know it takes i think um us talking publicly about how we see our forms of practice to be very different and much more um, intentional in their difference that can help inspire other people to be able to do the same thing. But again, it's a lot, right? It's just, it is at the same time a lot. And I, you know, I have a a, a probably extreme sense of responsibility, Mm. (laughs) generally speaking, to Mm -hmm. a fault. Um, But I have felt that you know, it's particularly over the last five or six years that I need to be very vocal around the fact that I value my form of practice under different terms than how it might have been valued previously. Um, and that it's possible to do this work, but it does come at sacrifice of other things. That it's possible to um, think differently about the way that you talk about what your work can do, um, and not dumb it down, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. you know?
1: And to make sure that you know you know that it's possible to actually speak the language of construction just as much as it is to speak the language of design if you're really thinking about that being a core concern and issue that you're taking on board as part of the project. So for us, it's always ingrained in that middle zone, right? Like for me, it's always been what comes in that gap is... The bulk of the work that we have to do and and if we can and you know what is the right language for that i guess is also something that i'm constantly sure. coming back to as well so yeah it's not a comp it's not a easy simple answer to your question it's a, nope, a multi-layered <laughs> and multifaceted one that you can see at many different angles from the meta to the right. much more specific and individual
0: how did you get that experience of being able to speak both of those languages and kind of synthesize something new or different or, you know, figure out how to explain that without dumbing it down?
1: Um, so I have always liked to build things. When I was eight, I went into the woods by my parents' house and like built my own mini cabins and things like that. I think I've always just been able to um, to to talk about what it should be you know, and be able to, I don't know, It's maybe it's an intuitive thing, I guess, for yeah, me. Right. But it's also been spending time with, um, with people in construction. So I've spent a lot of time with tradies, um, as we call them out in the, here in the UK. I've spent a lot of time with different laborers, carpenters, joint, you know, brickies.
2: Mm.
1: And, you know, just demonstrated to them that I'm, I want to know what they know. Mm. You know, I want to understand how they see the world. Mm -hmm. I think once you start building that trust that you're not there just to tell them what you know, (laughs) like that it's the right thing, then you immediately break down that barrier and you get on the same plane. So in my work, I've always, I think, taken a very community driven approach, even just the way that I have a one to one conversation. And that has helped me a lot in having some what could be really difficult conversations (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, with people on site.
0: There's not a lot of opportunity for people in architecture to do that, right? There's like, it's like keep people at their desks, keep people productive. And then that means you can't just because you're you're so focused on that means that there's just no time to do the other thing. It's it's away from the office. Obviously, people can take a proactive approach to this and make it happen. Yes. But I think at at scale or at, at large, that isn't really happening. There's not that. No,
1: I, I think you do have to take a proactive approach to it. Mm-hmm. I think that. Um, and that's a shame, but it's also an opportunity um, to listen yeah, and to not know, th- to know that you aren't the expert, right, mm-hmm. in someone yeah. else's reality. Like just that as a base level is very difficult for a lot of architects to consider because they have, a, a, you know, eight years of education or however mm-hmm. long uh, mm-hmm. years of studying, you know, the, the expertise I, um, issue, I think. Is a big one that we have to confront. And as soon as you admit that you're not an expert in someone else's lived experience, then that really breaks down, you know, your own perception of your role. So yes, you can be proactive in trying to gain those experiences. But I also think it's a mentality for how you do work, hmm. too. You know, even if you're just in an office and whatever you're doing, I think you can still, if you can transform your mentality about it, then you can actually open yourself up to opportunities that wouldn't necessarily seem as obvious the opportunities to begin with
0: yeah the the whole point of you know going to architect well not the whole point but one of the major kind of underlying things about architecture school is it's training you for a white-collar job right and then there's this blue-collar job you know and you know i guess it's not even in air quotes it's 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 a real thing and there's a huge uh, shift been away from blue collar work for a very long time right especially with people going to university i mean it's it's all about training people to become knowledge workers it reminds me of a book i read a long time ago and i need to reread it called shop class as soul craft and it's about the value of blue collar work i um, can't exactly remember the the author's name matthew something i'll look it up and i'll add it to the show notes but it's in a it's it Coming from the perspective of a guy who went—I think he was a psychologist—ended up working at a think tank, like very <laughs> cerebral, very white-collar training, and then opened up like a motor motorcycle uh, maintenance kind of job, and and just really got into the value of thinking with your hands, putting things together, taking things apart, like the puzzle aspect of it, and it kind of gets back to this whole idea of what your brain is wired for. And I think about students who are growing up in urban areas. Like you said, you went out to the woods and you would build stuff. And that opportunity barely exists in urban centers where these big architecture schools are and construction sites are run by regulatory agencies, right? And so you can't just walk onto a construction site like OSHA's there or whatever. And there's risk and there's all these things. And you, and so- it is hard. Like so so being proactive about that is something that it there needs to be advocates in every area here for that Absolutely. bridge to get crossed. I mean, if there's no advocacy, if there are people who are just trying to fit in and make sure all the boxes are checked and it's going to keep everyone in their lane, right? And so totally to build that advocacy across all of these different silos so that the cross disciplinary connections can be made because there's value in those, it needs to be somebody's big project, right? Like, this is no, absolutely.
1: Of... I think that I think that that is ultimately an amazing space to be working in. And I think also it comes, you know, it comes down to it doesn't even need to be about walking in a construction site or having access to fields, about this idea of, um, You know, knowing that your curiosity is valuable. Mm. Um, And to even know how to engage with your own sense of curiosity. You know, in first year architecture school, it's, you know, you you get taught how to read a plan in a section. You know, you also get taught how to think. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And if that could happen even earlier in education... It, it, a successful education for me would be able to be taught that as early on, that your own curiosity is valuable. Hmm. And that enables you to tinker, right? Even if it's just in your thoughts, sure. tinker with ideas and creativity and to explore how things feel for you, how your view of the world um, is unique and can be seen in different ways. And I think that, you know, architecture school does do that to a certain degree, but then it doesn't find a way to translate that tinkering, hacking, curiosity into how to converse in a professional environment. Well, and and, that's, and you... that's where we have a great opportunity to like learn from sociology, right? Because mm. they know how to ask the right que- or anthropology, they know how to ask the right questions mm-hmm. to get people to share their own lived experiences. So I actually draw a lot in my work from, from anthropological techniques that allows mm. me to kind of open those doors rather than to assume that they're closed
0: most jobs for recent graduates are just do the thing right apply the skill don't don't be curious it's amazing how much curiosity is available in those people who just came out of like the most incredibly creative time in their whole life so far like the output is insane and then it's like sit in the jaw sit in the chair and draw the lines that somebody else is telling. it It's what a shift. And how many people does that neuter like within the next five years to just just do the task, just be a task generator?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can count, I don't know, on two hands of 80 of us, people that I know are still, are doing interesting things from my graduating class. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, which is, a, I mean, there are people who are still doing some interesting things but a lot of people have left mm-hmm. you know because they either got burned out or mm. their job was too dull or they went into another direction
0: or demoralized and, or or demoralized or, yeah, or
1: underpaid yeah. for too long or like right. whatever it looks like you know and i think to to be able to know that it's also okay to have that alternative path is something that we should encourage much more
2: oh yeah you know, that's a hour, big deal. Yeah.
1: Yeah, At our, we have always tried to do a different form of practice, you know, like not be an architecture practice or an architecture firm and, you know, quote unquote, try to do a different form of practice, try to organize in a different way, try to have a different kind of hierarchy and structure to try and live our values, which are ultimately about being able to be as accessible as possible.
0: This episode is sponsored by Confluence. I've invited Randall Stevens, the CEO of Avail, to tell you about it.
3: In 2019, we held the inaugural Confluence event, which was designed to bring together the product managers, the technology developers that are working on the products used daily in the AEC industry, and put them in the room with the design technology leaders from the practice side that are actually implementing and using these technologies. The goal isn't to sell anybody anything at these events. The goal is to get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working, and what would be the best products to develop to be implemented in the AECO industry. We've held these three-day Confluence events the past four years and attracted over 100 attendees. We have an exciting agenda plan for our annual event in October. The theme this year is going to be focused around AI and machine learning and its applications in the AEC industry. You can learn more about Confluence at getavail.com slash confluence.
0: Clearly, okay. this lights you up like you're, you're grinning as you're saying this stuff. And I want yes. this is the perfect segue because I wanted to get back to what is your form of practice? Can you explain what you're doing, what your approach is, what makes it different? Like, are, you know, what are you trying to do there?
1: So, at Automated Architecture, we set up um, as a tech company. So, we have developed a, a approach that uses um, a microfactory with robotics to build homes, sustainable timber homes, and essentially, we productized a house or mm-hmm. housing mm-hmm. and. Um, You know, it it has a lot of connections to the 1950s stories of post-war housing, right? Like, how do you get as much housing as possible, that's decent quality, up as fast as possible? And the only way to do that is to do manufacturing, to Mm. manufacture homes. There's no way to do it with the way that we build traditional timber frame or concrete block or precast concrete or whatever. Because the infra- there's too much infrastructure that's needed. So at our we really focus on providing the, technologi- the technological infrastructure to make builders able to build more efficiently with much less risk. So the way that we've done this is we've developed uh, a series of housing products that are high-quality, sustainable, net-zero homes, beautiful, si- simple but beautiful homes. Um, and they're designed with our proprietary building system, which is based on, essentially, it's their Lego-like or Meccano-like. So there's one building block that can be combined together in many different ways, create many different kinds of houses, and it can be robotically prefabricated in a microfactory, okay. which means they can be produced, manufactured and produced close to site, you know, without huge transport costs, which in the U.S. is a big issue. In Europe, it's also a big issue, depending on where you are. And it can be delivered within six weeks.
0: I have no idea what the highway system is like in England, but uh, so so this idea of microfactories is really important to what you're you're talking about. It is because
1: localized manufacturing is really important to what we're doing.
0: And and so then it just becomes like a different logistics problem, right? It's it's about. Spooling up a factory and taking down a factory potentially when a when a job is quote unquote done, um, I think one of the biggest things that that this allows when people when you talk about delivering housing at scale is by doing a factory kind of a build where you're you're obviously there's there's craftsmanship and tolerances and and especially when you're working with robotics that are able to be met for higher quality output, but also it allows you to parallelize tasks, right? That stuff can yep. be being built while the, the site is being prepared. Whereas traditional construction, it's all sequential, right? You have to do yes. this before that. And so by doubling up these tracks of, you know, building the spaces while the site's being prepared, while they're under, you know, it just, it, it opens up opportunity for things to actually go faster. I don't know that it actually makes yes. things cost less from people that I've talked to on the modular, prefabrication side they say actually doesn't cost less but it saves you a ton of time right and so it time is money also there is a time (laughs) is money component to that for sure for sure
1: yeah i mean the modular we're not i i I struggle with being called a modular building system Mm -hmm. i um or a modular building a modular company we are not quite because modular building companies or modular housing factories. Are have to be big, they have to be expensive. That makes they sense. do take very long time to set up, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, their product, generally speaking, still requires a lot of manual labor. So even though there can be that paralyzed, paralyzed parallelization,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, they still can take upwards of two to three years to set up. I'm talking mm-hmm. about a factory that can be essentially productized, so it can be brought to site and set up in less than a month. And that means that you can get a much shorter payback time in comparison to a large modular factory. Sure. You can be closer to site, all those great things. Um, So, you know, I think we have to look, you know, really carefully. And the, the problem with modular housing factories is that they have to, because they're so expensive, they have to have really high quantities. So even though we need really high quantities of housing, we need a large pipeline to be able to go through a factory. They're so expensive that if there's anything that goes wrong, they're not agile enough as a model to be able to accommodate for problems, which you are oftentimes match, human caused.
0: You have to match supply and demand, right? And so yes. you are creating very expensive things. There's like no other way to slice that. These are the most expensive things that people buy, most likely. Yeah. And so the, th- the throughput is essential. And at the same time, it has to match the demand. Does that exist or not? And, and where is it coming from?
1: Which is why a micro factory is great, right? Because you essentially can be able to adapt the micro factory to your pipeline rather than mm-hmm. your pipeline having to adapt to the factory or the factory by, having to
0: fail the pipeline. By adapt, what do you mean by that? Do you mean the size of the factory, the throughput of the factory? Like the, So the talking?
1: factory the factory has a, has a, um, a set throughput, but it can be, it's a modular factory. So it can be, you can have multiple factories, copy and paste next to each other to make a larger factory. And because we have a networked approach in that we have a, we're developing a micro-factory network of many smaller micro-factories, if one part of the pipeline, one part of the network has a larger pipeline, you can actually pull it through another mm-hmm. microfactory in the network that might so, have downtime. Okay. So it allows us to be much more agile and adaptive to the supply and demand shifts that the market inevitably will have.
0: It's like a decentralized model, right? <laughs> it's like this yes, sharing exactly. of resources. Okay. Yeah, so exactly, let, let's talk about the labor component. I mean, you're talking about robotics. Explain what that means, because I think one of the arguments that I've heard the benefit of the I, like the localized microfactory idea is that there's also job opportunities for local labor, right? And that helps build community, things like that. I'm not sure that's happening in your model or not. So maybe talk about the the labor side of things, or the, versus, or in in concert with the robotic side of things.
1: So we, we um, partner with contractors for the delivery of the houses that are in our pipeline. Um, so we provide, as our some design services to clients and um, developers, et cetera. And then we also partner with contractors that those developers might be working with or with other contractors that might have their own pipeline. And that means we set up the microfactory um, either near to on-site or within contractors' existing spaces. And in that microfactory itself, we can automate the prefabrication of the building system almost in its entirety. The one thing that we can't do is automate um, volumetric delivery because that's too large and too, it's just too large. Mm -hmm. But we can do a pretty good job of that with gantry systems and tracking tracking systems. So we essentially go from a sheet of timber to as much of a finished house as possible within that microfactory. It still requires some manual labor for finishing. You know, we we don't put in insulation using the robots, for example, because humans are just better. But we do uh, offer the blocks up to, for humans to put in the labor, which means that they can be moved much more easily because the blocks mm-hmm. are a little bit heavy now. And they're, mm-hmm. uh, they're quite large blocks at this point. So we use the automation in the microfactory for the things that would either be very slow for humans to do moving blocks around. Very hard for humans to do moving blocks around. Assembling blocks, which is very repetitive work that takes a lot on your body. I've assembled probably a thousand blocks at this point myself um, over the year, over the last few years, and it is it is painful. It's like you don't mm-hmm. want to be doing it. Um, so we do the most high value add parts of the production chain with the robotics. And then the most high value add parts of the production chain with people that um, for their skill sets.
0: So it really is kind of this, uh, I mean, I hate to say well-oiled machine, but you've taken the best parts of both worlds, right? To yes. be able to drive the most value at the the least physically um, detrimental parts for the, for the people, right? Put that on the robots. Exactly. Yeah, that exactly. makes a lot of sense
1: because also you know we have to reckon with the fact that in in construction the largest age group is the largest increasing age group is 60 plus
0: that makes total sense so that's,
1: that's we have a labor of, crisis this we can't is that be gap. giving people to do terrible jobs anymore that well, are physically demanding on their body
0: there is that part that the the terrible part of the jobs and then there's the part of like nobody wanted to send their kids to school to become those part of the job, getting Absolutely. back to that, that blue yeah, it's collar both. work. Yep, yep, yep. So it's interesting. So with this new model, is it attractive to younger generations? I kind yeah, of yeah, exactly. It, it is. It's yeah. a tech
1: job, and it's cool, right? They're working with robots. That's awesome.
0: Mm. So we got a
1: lot of we got a lot of people inquiring to to work with us, um, because they see a robot. You know, they might have done some. We get a lot of people who play video games, for example, you know, sure. they, they identify already with these technologies um, they might have built some of their own tools already and it all of a sudden becomes cool. And the thing, the other thing to say is that even a job as someone who's a technician in an hour microfactory, you don't need to be a roboticist.
2: Mm, right. You
1: can just be a kid who's interested in tech or wants a job. <laughs> yeah, it could be almost anyone. We can, then we, that's a lot of the work that community work that I've done is about like testing out if that was really possible. Hmm. Um, so all the kind of interfaces that we've developed for the tools that we use are very, they're designed to be low threshold because it's important. It's an important part of our differentiator is that we can enable a different subset of the population and different demographic to want to do this work.
0: Right. So what's that I mean, you you said it's attractive to people. So what does that mean for you? I mean that it seems like like you are creating a portal for people to get into this industry who probably never had it on their radar so like in raw kind of what what's your sense of of how attractive that's really been for for the younger generation to get into
1: so we've done a lot of work in um in the States would be high schools, but here it's called, they're called colleges, 16 to 18 year olds who have started to specialize in their interests. So we've worked, uh, done a lot of work in Brickling and programs and carpentry programs, multidisciplinary programs. And as soon as you show people that they can work with a robot, they get really excited. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing. They're like robotics. Awesome. And it's also just really important because. In the UK, the demographics of people who are working as casual laborers on job sites are also the demographic of people who have the least success in school. Mm, Yeah. So in traditional school. So if we get them at age 16 to 18 before they even go out into the workforce, we're demonstrating that there is a potential opportunity space that's growing where they can have quite a lot of ownership and authorship by using their... By using the knowledge that they might have gained already from some of their education and by tapping into a bit of knowledge and a bit of the way of working, you know, this idea of visual learning or being an object learner and um, tapping into that earlier before they, let's say, get too conditioned by traditional construction to not see the opportunity space that exists by working with them.
0: That's really interesting. I mean even I I even think that there's kids way younger than that who have been completely kneecapped by the education system, right? Because they didn't fit the yeah. mold that's been identified as the one way that you go through school. And I mean, it, it's really, I mean, it's great that you're reaching kids as young as 16. And at the same time, it's like, that's, I wonder how many students don't even make it that far before totally. they're just what. And, and I also really appreciate your perspective on, showing them something that is exciting when, and mixing that with kind of traditional construction jobs because traditional labor in construction sites is kind of backbreaking, you know, it, people. It's, it, it's interesting that there's so many people over 60 and yet like how hard it is on people to be mm. a construction worker, right? And, and I th- I'm sure that's why a lot of people leave as well um, it's just because it's so physically demanding. And so to to start to create opportunities to change that narrative is really an interesting way. Or, you know, I, it probably wasn't planned out that way to be to be said exactly like that. But it is an outcome of putting, injecting robotics into it to say, look, the, the robot's going to do the heavy lifting. We're going to use you for, for the most valuable thing on the construction site. Is your firm suffering from an illness common in the AEC industry? mediocre IT support syndrome, also known as MITS syndrome. Common symptoms include not submitting a ticket because your IT provider takes too long to respond, losing access to your files and having to deal with the issue yourself, or not getting advice and guidance on the latest tools and software because your IT provider doesn't understand your business. When you're focusing on these problems, you are not working on your next big project. We call this quiet suffering. If you've ever thought about your IT support as it could be worse, it's time to shake things up and get back to health with your IT. It could be much better. Think about it. If your customer is building a hospital, would they hire an architecture firm specializing in residential ADUs? Why are you putting up with a mediocre IT service delivered by a generic IT provider? ArcIT only supports architecture, design, and engineering firms at a price that would pleasantly surprise you. Let them take care of your IT so you can focus on doing your best work. Head over to their website, read the reviews, review their pricing. Yes, you heard that right. They put their pricing right on their website. And, of course, request a free consultation at GetArchIT.com. G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot And I also love this idea of young people coming to work in a microfactory and just that amazing, uh, satisfying feeling of actually building real things, right? That Like there's a major difference there between that and, and the video game thing, like the throwaway aspect of the video game accomplishments, right? But it's like you're making real things for real people and they're going to live their life in that. And because it's a better building, they're going to have a better life. I mean, I, you can kind of sell this story not in a slimy selling kind of a way, but but like it really makes a difference. The the spaces that people inhabit change their outlook and their contribution back to community, right? And yep. I think that's a lot of the stuff that doesn't get talked about enough when we start to talk about this need for housing, right? It's like if everyone had this kind of basic right of of housing that was better than average, then you would have better-than-average opportunities for for people to contribute back into society because that would be taken care of.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, we we saw that in the work that we've done it with No West Media Center um, directly. You know, one of the things that um, some of the participants said to us was that they didn't feel like they had any authority to mm-hmm. take ownership of any part of their community. Mm-hmm. Or they didn't believe that they had this, They had been told their whole life that they didn't have anything good to offer. And then all of a sudden, over a period of time of working together, they realize that they have so much to offer. Like Even if you can just change the lives of a few people in a small community to, dem- to see that they have opportunity to explore their own world in a really meaningful way and contribute to the construction of that world in a meaningful way, I think that that can have knock-on effects are so intangible that we can't really uh we can't really underestimate them yeah and so i love the work that my our collaborators at nolas media center are doing now and um, they're working really closely in their community to essentially build backyard homes but through a community land trust where members of that community give up land that they own over to the community land trust for them to build small Backyard homes wow. for members of that community that are in need, and it's just this circular. You can see how it can build the circular effect of that in people's perceptions, a sense of community, a sense of ownership, a sense of authorship, sense of responsibility and maintenance. All of these things come together in a really beautiful way. Then
0: that's incredible. I, I haven't heard of that system. It's like a philanthropic kind of act that that's happening, right? And to be on the receiving end of that has just got to be. Like we've all seen the home renovation shows where the team comes in and everyone's crying by the end, right? I can't, when when that's happening for real people and it's not on TV, right? It's gotta be absolutely incredible to be a receiver of that gift, right? And and just the agency that that would be giving people to, like you said, like they didn't have those opportunities we didn't know what they were capable of because they never had the agency to become the author of their community in any way and what that could contribute back to to all kinds of things it's it what an amazing story
1: i feel like our is trying to do that but on a much more from a slightly more zoomed out position right so our collaborators are doing it in a very zoomed-in way. Mm-hmm. They do have intentions of scaling this and have started mm-hmm. to do so, which I'll, I'll send you uh, the project. But what we're trying to do is across across countries and regions, right? Yeah. You're talking and about the I puzzle
0: always, scale and everyone's yeah. – every piece of the puzzle is very important, right? But Very important. But they can't affect the whole puzzle. They can only affect – the puzzle piece right next to them, right? They can touch they, that they one. They can but, enable but you... other
1: people to adopt, mm-hmm. right? Parts of their methodology. Mm-hmm. But what about being able to do that in a super horizontal way
2: mm-hmm. globally? Right. Right.
1: It requires a kind of slightly different level of scalar thinking. Sure. Because there's things that won't be able to be replicable in every places when you're zoomed in to a hyper-local setting. Right. So we've always taken the position of that hyper setting is super important for giving us baselines,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And being able to tell us, you know, what that baseline should be and how should we begin to uh, test it against other baselines or other communities or other places. But the intention has always been to be at a much more zoomed out scale. Yeah, Because I love the vision, you know, I love the idea of a network of contractors collaborating together super efficiently in really localized settings but globally sharing information about how they're doing and how they're doing it and where they're finding problems and barriers and bottlenecks and whatever else and then at the same time being able to lock in members of their community in ways that they haven't been able to locked into before into this story and being able to give people great living environments as a result it's like right
0: win, it's win, a beautiful
1: win. vision yeah. right <laughs>
0: It's interesting to think about it as a platform for communication between what were previously probably considered as in a competitive environment. And yes, we see this with architecture everywhere, right? We see it as like this intellectual property and and this information can't be shared. It's totally holding everybody back, right? If you have contractors who are, like you're saying, if there's enough work for everybody, all of a sudden it changes the conversation away from it being a competitive environment to saying, no, let's share what's working amongst everybody and let's ditch the stuff that's not working amongst everybody so that we can raise all boats together. And that, like you said, completely changes the conversation, makes it really valuable for the entire industry. And we need to see that more on the architecture side as well. But there's not this kind of overarching puzzle scale level it happens on in some ways. Um, like I used to be part of the AIA's large firm roundtable, and with the the technology side of that, people were very open to share what was working, what's not working, with everybody else around the table. And you know, it's fifty large firms in the U.S. who are coming together. But getting from that talk to action is a very different story, right? Because there's so many other layers to that onion before the rubber hits the road like there's so many cliches here totally. I apologize. but it's it's one of those things where it's like some sharing is happening but if it isn't actually making its way to the person who swings the hammer or operates the robot then it doesn't actually matter right it actually has to trickle down it has to get outside of the closed door room conversations and be shared in this more way more open source kind of a manner um, for it to be truly effective and, and raise everybody up.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the way that we can begin to get people onboarded into this kind of project, or at least the scale of this kind of project, is by, you know, the way that we've done it, at least, is by demonstrating the value add. So, you know, at least in Europe, ESG requirements are pr- becoming very strict for contractors, sustainability is becoming a very large issue. Being able to demonstrate the benefit of localized manufacturing on those issues, working in this way on those issues, has been a huge way to convince people that they can do it. And the other way of doing it, of course, is by cost. Being able to show that you can still save money and increase your margins by working in this manner because you're being able to benefit from everyone that's participating in the network is something that really gets people quickly interested. Right. So in our we say we have been able to demonstrate that contractors can five times their margins by working mm, with us. Imagine wow. the freedom. Right. Right. That comes with that.
0: That's incredible. <laughs> and
1: it up it can upend a lot of the normal conventions. Obviously when it comes to developers, they have their own cost structures and things like that. Uh, but if we can h- deliver a more de risked and predictable product and enable contractors to tr- operate in a far less precarious environment and still be able to keep their costs down in terms of how they deliver projects, like it's a win.
0: <laughs> do they become salespeople in your marketing department? Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, like extended <laughs> version of that, but do they act? want, if there's that vision there and they're, they're like sold on it, I'm, I'm in, do they then start to tell that story to their local communities?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a kind of early adopter effect. Right. So um, I see that network effect as being super beneficial, where we actually get a lot of um, marketing opportunity from his other architects. Mm, interesting. So we have, you know, a very extensive international network of architects that we either know or have worked with or know of us. And we get a lot of inquiries from people who would like to work with our building system. And, you know, that is something that's really exciting for us because essentially, you know, we are showing people that it's possible to still have work with a kind of work with a building system, but still have a a huge degree of creativity. And that for architects is really exciting and also de-risking some of their other problems. Yeah. And it gives them
0: a way to kind of dip into this productized architecture segment, which most architects aren't working in. Right. So it's got to be. Exactly. This. It's a, it's another incentive to, like, architects are just kind of insatiably curious, right? And so this other thing that, that's now out there that they've become aware of has got to be really interesting, kind of tantalizing to go, like, chase that, chase that and see where it goes. That's pretty cool. Totally,
1: totally, totally, you know, giving people a kind of opportunity to explore, you know, the best part about being an architect, which is being a, a creative rather than, um you know, having to worry about how things go together all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and like the unknowns that come with that sometimes too. And with us, there's a level of predictability, transparency that you can't get in unless you've tried and trusted things many times.
0: And it's got to be closer to like you've, you actually have bridged the gap by creating this network of construction professionals. And you've got this obviously the handle on the architecture side to be able to And even the piece in the middle of manufacturing and production, it's like, here's what we know. And it's like, it almost becomes like this Wikipedia of our, right? Which is, here's how we do it. Here's what works. Here's what we know doesn't work. And like that has got to be an incredible resource to have your finger on the pulse of all those things. Because in traditional practice where I come from, right, it's a low bid scenario. and. It's adversarial by nature. It's designed to be that way, right? It's in and, and under the guise of like we're protecting the public to get the lowest cost possible. It's like low fee, low bid. What could go wrong? Everything could go wrong. It turns out, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so totally, um, it's rare when it actually works. And those stories are like the stories of legend when they do, when they're, when they're incredible. But if that becomes normal, If that's normalized, that changes the the game for everybody. Totally. It does. Well, Molly, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've had a lot of fun.
1: Thanks. Me too.
0: I I would love to point everyone in in your direction. So give everybody the URL where they can head over to see your work. And I'll include all the links in the show notes so they don't have to memorize it. But I would love to give you kind of the opportunity to tell everybody where you're doing your work online so they can follow along.
1: Great, you can find us at automatedarchitecture.io. I'm on Instagram at Molly Claypool. And our is underscore underscore A-U-A-R. So perfect. We're on all the social media. Come find Great. us and follow us.
0: Thank you, Molly. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Evan. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at TRXL.co. And I'll talk to you again next week.